Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Wildfires and gas-powered vehicles are two of the largest contributors to California air pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. So in an effort to address them, Proposition 30 on the ballot this November would raise taxes on the super wealthy to fund wildfire prevention and electric vehicle incentives and infrastructure. So it might sound like a winner in a progressive and environmentally conscious state like California, but the opposition has unusual bedfellows with Republicans and billionaires teaming up with Governor Newsom to try to defeat it. So here to help us make sense of the proposition is energy staff writer for the Los Angeles Times and author of the Boiling Point newsletter, Sammy Roth. Welcome to State of the Bay, Sammy. Hey, Ethan. Happy to be here. So, Sammy, tell us what is Proposition 30 and why is it on the ballot this November? Yeah, Proposition 30 would, uh, as you said, it would fund this very large amount of of spending on electric vehicle subsidies and uh, funding for charging stations and also wildfire resilience projects. Um, It would do that by uh, raising taxes on the wealthiest Californians, so people with incomes over $2 million a year would see their their top marginal rate for that income over two million would increase from three point three percent to just over fifteen or excuse me, thirteen point three percent to just over fifteen percent. Um and the estimate is that over you know the next twenty years that would raise somewhere in the, the neighborhood of three point five to five billion dollars a year. Um and that, that money would go to those causes. The reason it's on the ballot, I mean this was it was written by by environmental groups who you know want to see this spending, but uh, really, this is this is backed by Lyft, the the ride sharing company. They've they've spent uh, at least forty five million dollars at this point bankrolling this proposition and campaigning to get people to support it. Lyft is motivated by a, a new state regulation that was uh, passed uh, by the Air Resources Board not too long ago. That I think it was the Air Resources Board. It would require Lyft to basically and, and other ride share companies to get the vast majority, almost all of their vehicle miles traveled from non emitting vehicles by twenty thirty. So they've They've got a strong motivation to get state funding to to help their drivers get electric cars. So that that's what's going on here. But it's not like Lyft would be profiting off of this ballot initiative, right? I mean, how how exactly would Lyft be benefiting? Well, Lyft would be benefiting because it would just it would make it easier for them financially to sort of oversee this transition. So with, without this kind of support, they would probably have to spend. Uh, you know, change their business model or find ways to shift more of their revenues to supporting this transition for drivers, because otherwise drivers aren't going to be able to afford it with this the state funding. And the state funding would benefit everyone. I mean, this is not targeted directly at at Lyft or, or Uber, which is not involved in the proposition, but Lyft sees this as something that would help its cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird. If, if it does benefit Lyft so much, why isn't Uber involved in supporting this as well? Don't they have the exact same business interests? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and I don't know the <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. Some, someone pointed out to me that Uber, unlike Lyft, at least offers you know small financial incentives at this point for drivers to to shift to EVs. But I, in terms of why Lyft is doing this and not Uber, I'm, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the measure itself, so you mentioned the higher tax rates that for people make over two million a year, and that it would provide you know billions of, of revenue. Is this time limited at all? Um, no, I mean, it, it It goes for 20 years. I think there are some triggers in there that if California reaches certain levels of EV adoption or emissions reduction in transportation, it would taper off. But I I don't know the specifics of that. It, it's designed to go for 20 years, basically. And since we're already seeing 
pretty strong demand for electric vehicles and automakers are already planning to phase out internal combustion engines. And they have to in California by 2035, at least for new vehicles. Do we even need this money? I mean, is this transition happening on its own anyways? How, how critical is this money going to be for that transition? Well, that's, that's a good question. And one of those depends on who you ask. So I, I talked with people who are against the proposition and, and are still you know, pro-climate and their their argument was, well, California is already appropriating a lot of money to this cause. And in the last two budget cycles, the state has, has allocated $10 billion to various clean car and initiatives, uh, you know, financial incentives for low-income drivers to purchase EVs and support for charging stations and things of that nature. So, you know, $10 billion sounds like a lot of money. But that said, this, I mean, this initiative would, would put in, what was it, 3.5 to $5 billion per year, you know, locked in for, for 20 years um, or something like that. And, uh, you know, so that, that's a lot more money. It's more than the state has typically budgeted. The last two years were a little bit of a, an anomaly where there was a much bigger climate focus under, under Gavin Newsom. Um, and the other, the other reason that uh, a lot of environmentalists support this is that the money is locked in. It's not left to the vagaries of the budget cycle. It's not left to, you know, is there a... You know, is there a recession and uh, the state budget, you know, the lawmakers cut back? I mean, this is this is more money than has typically been spent year in, year out. And it's just, you know, a safe bet. It's in the state constitution because that's what a proposition does. And I should also disclose that I've actually uh, enlisted. I'm enlisted in the ballot um, material refuting one of the arguments uh, against Prop 30. So I should disclose that as, as part of my role at UC Berkeley Law School. I wanted to ask you about the wildfire prevention piece of this. First of all, how how big a chunk of uh, the money is going to be going to wildfire prevention and what exactly is the measure going to be funding there? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's 20 percent. Um, so, I mean, I think that I think the wildfire funding is a little bit in here to sort of help build support for the electric vehicle fund. Not that it's an insignificant pot of money, but when you've got, you know, wildfire prevention as part of your campaign and you've got the, you know, the wildfire uh, firefighters union supporting you, that's pretty powerful um, I, I got to be honest with you, I'm not as familiar with the details of the wildfire for, portion. I know it's, I mean, it's a combination of prescribed burns and forest thinning projects and, you know, hardening types of efforts, things to, you know, things to help, uh, you know, fires from not being so devastating, but I, I don't know the details line by line. Well, let me ask you about the, the politics of this. As I mentioned, it is really strange bedfellows here. I think you have some of the people you'd expect to line up against it. I mean, Republican, the Republican Party is opposed to it. You've also got some very wealthy people who would take a big financial hit from this who are opposed to it. But then you've got Gavin Newsom also teaming up with them. So why doesn't the governor support this measure? Well, that's a that's a good question. The the arguments I, I spoke with his his former cabinet secretary, uh, Adam Santos, who, who just retired from that position, but is still sort of advising Newsom in the, the no on 30 campaign on this. And the arguments she made were basically this should be worked out. You know, one, we're already spending a lot of money on EVs. Two, this should be worked out in, in the budget cycle. So she said, look, we've got to spend a lot of money on sort of bulking up the, the electric grid to power the EV revolution. And we've got wildfire spending and we've got all sorts of other climate related issues. And uh, it should really be up to the, the legislature to sort through those things and figure out how we want to spend tax revenue and who we want to tax and how much we want to spend on which priority. So I'm sure that's part of it. I think the teachers unions are probably also part of it that California Teachers Association has come out really strongly against this, which, you know, you may ask why, you know, why would, why would the teachers not want to support electric vehicle and, and wildfire funding? And what it comes down to is right now, the way the California constitution is set up, uh, a certain portion of state budget revenues 
certain percentage has to go to schools, um, which, you know, arguably is, you know, uh, people, some people think that's a, a great idea. But the, the thing is, this would create a dedicated revenue stream that is outside of the bounds of that provision. So you'd have more tax money coming in from the wealthy with none of it going to schools and, and the teachers unions don't like that and they don't uh, like the precedent it sets and, and they've got a lot of political heft. So I, I imagine that has something to do with Newsom's opposition as well. The, the teacher union argument, I mean, this is all brand new money, so it's not like it takes away from what they already get. I mean, this money wouldn't exist without this measure. That's correct. So is it? So you say it's the precedent setting, but is it also potential that maybe they want to see, want to might want to raise taxes in the future in a similar way and then be able to take 40% of that for a school? I, I don't know. That would, that would be speculation on my part. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, maybe we can uh, try to track someone down from there to, to, to get an answer. Maybe they'll, they'll, they won't say. Who knows? It seems like people kind of keep their reasons to themselves when, uh, when it comes to these types of initiatives. Uh, but there is another... Yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. I think I think you're going to ask about the thing I was going to bring up, the timber companies. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask about the uh, opposition from timber companies, three timber companies in California that are otherwise, you know, I think generally kind of fly under the radar here. They're not always in the news here. They're now coming out spending against the measure. So you would think that they would uh, appreciate having wildfire prevention dollars. What do you, What do you make of this opposition? What are they saying? Yeah, it was three companies that I think collectively had spent more than a million dollars against Prop 30. I think it was one of the companies that was the vast majority of that that money. I'm forgetting which one. You know, it's interesting. There was a, the Politico wrote a story about this, and basically there was there was speculation in the article from people who are unhappy with the timber companies and support Prop 30 that maybe they don't like all of the wildfire resilience spending because of all the money they make harvesting burned trees after wildfires. I I don't know if that's true or not. That's you know speculation on the part of people who support Prop 30, but the timber companies refused to comment for this story and haven't seemingly offered any explanation that I've seen publicly of what, what they're doing getting involved with this. So it kind of leaves, leaves things open for people to make, uh, make assumptions. Mm-hmm. And do you see or have you heard about limitations from, from the environmental side uh, of the proposition as it's currently written? I mean, for those who, who care about wanting to advance electric vehicles, are, they, are there concerns about how, how the proposition is written? I haven't heard any. Um, you know, I, I, what I, one thing I did there, I checked in with the two, there are two major environmental groups that haven't, you know, come out in support or in opposition. That's the Environmental Defense uh, Fund and the Sierra Club. And EDF sort of caught my attention because the, the chairman of their board, who's very wealthy, uh, is actually a major donor against Prop 30. And I asked EDF about, about this. And basically they told me, look, we, you know, we were, we, we were solicited for our input on the drafting of this. We, you know, offered some advice but we typically don't, you know, don't get involved in ballot measures. So we just decided to stay out of it. Sierra Club, um, essentially what they told me was that they, they love the EV stuff. And if it was just that, they would support it. But they've got uh, some members and some of their local chapters who um, aren't, uh, aren't so happy with prescribed burns as a fire resilience measure. I should say there's a lot of science showing that uh, prescribed burns are, are what forests need and are a very helpful tool to fight wildfires. But um, within the Sierra Club, you've you've got a, a lot of folks who are are skeptical and want to make sure that these projects sort of aren't doing more environmental harm than good, and that's what's kept the Sierra Club out of it, not the electric vehicles piece. Hmm. Well, and you, and you mentioned earlier that the state is already spending, or at least Ana Matasano said, you know, the state is spending a lot of money on electric vehicles with ten billion over the next five years. We've also got uh, federal dollars coming in. Uh, President Biden signed. Uh, climate bill that includes a lot of infrastructure funding for uh, for 
electric vehicle chargers, as well as extending and modifying the tax credit for for purchases and and the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that that just passed. Uh, so let's say the transition happens very quickly. You know, this has got a 20 year time horizon. And let's say in the next five, you know, six years, we basically have what we need or we're on pace. Uh, what happens to that money if it's essentially extra, you know, thinking about the sort of the out years here? You know, I, I guess I have trouble imagining this money being, you know, entirely extra. Like this isn't an argument for or against Prop 30, but You've got to think about the scope of the problem here. Transportation is by far the biggest share of California's uh, greenhouse gas emissions. It's about 40 percent, not quite that high nationally, but but also the largest share nationally. And, you know, when you just when you think of the car dependence of California and sort of the the freeway centricity, especially of Southern California, um, and the fact that we're supposed to, you know, end the sale of gasoline vehicles by 2035, if, if not you know, if not earlier, if that timeline doesn't need to be sped up. Um, this is going to be so hard to do. It's just, especially if it's just hard to imagine there being at least right now too much money, which has never been the case before. Um, I would also say that even if this, especially if this proposition passes, I mean, I'm sure the legislature is going to take that into account in the spending levels they set. I mean, my, my guess would be knowing that this money is in place, if it is in place, you know, they're going to take that into account in their budgeting decisions and not put us in a position where somehow we're spending more than needs to be spent. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Sammy, my last question for you, I won't ask you to make a prediction about how it's going to turn out, but what have you, unless you want to, but uh, what have you seen on the polling? Yeah. So uh, LA Times, we co-sponsored a, a poll on this a couple of weeks ago, and the, the finding was uh, like 49% in favor, uh, 37% against, and 14% undecided. So, you know, basically a, you know, a proposition you vote, you know, it's just yes or no, and it's just you need 50% of the votes cast plus one, um, to get it across the finish line. So on the one hand, 49% support, you know, with, with only 37 opposed, makes it seem somewhat likely that it will pass. On the other hand, um, the sort of conventional wisdom about propositions is that it's harder to convince people to vote yes than to vote no. The sort of default is I'm just going to vote no unless I'm really convinced about this. So, you know, 49% is not is not 50%. And what those undecideds do is going to matter. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we'll have to stay tuned on election night for how Prop 30 turns out. But Sammy Roth, energy staff writer for the Los Angeles Times and author of the Boiling Point newsletter. Thank you so much for joining us on State of the Bay. Thank you, Ethan. And if anyone wants to uh, to receive the Boiling Point newsletter, it's at latimes.com slash boiling point. And I definitely recommend folks sign up for that if you're interested in these issues. Thank you, Sammy. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. And we want you to be a part of this next conversation. We're going to be talking about new advances in the field of adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACEs, A-C-E. Do you have any ACEs from childhood? Have you wondered how these experiences might be affecting your physical or mental health now? So give us a call. If so, we're at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also send us a message on Twitter at State of Bay. So in the famous Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, a.k.a. ACEs, done over 25 years ago, scientists learned that traumatic childhood experiences can lead to a higher likelihood of poor health and behavioral outcomes later in life. Last year, Governor Newsom awarded $20 million of state funds 
to support projects for families and communities with adverse childhood experiences. So here to discuss recent advancements in research, policy, and action are Dana Long, a pediatrician, researcher, and the director of the Center for Child and Community Health at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in Oakland. And she's also the co-principal investigator of the Pediatrics Adverse Childhood and Resilience Study, otherwise known as PEARLS, which we'll talk about in a moment, and the CARE Study. So welcome to State of the Bay, Dr. Long. Thank you so much for having me. And we're also pleased to be joined by Dr. Nicole Bush, Distinguished Professor in the UCSF Departments of Psychiatry and Pediatrics and the Director of the Division of Developmental Medicine. And she's the lead investigator on a range of research studies on adversity and health and the co-principal investigator of that care study that I mentioned along with Dr. Long. So welcome, Dr. Bush. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for including me. Glad you could join us. So, Dr. Long, let me start with you. Let's set the stage. Can you just explain for listeners what adverse childhood experiences or ACEs are and what having many ACEs in a child's life can mean for that child's future mental and physical health? Thank you for the great question. In order to level set the audience, let me define ACEs as adverse childhood experiences. ACEs fall within 10 categories, and there are three domains. Um, And these are experiences that happen to a person prior to the age of 18. And so these are experiences of abuse, neglect, or household challenges. When we think about abuse, that could be physical abuse, it could be sexual abuse. Neglect is a a child not being cared for despite the caregiver having the means to do so. And household challenges is a very broad category that encompasses um, many items, including having um, caregivers who are separated or divorced, having a caregiver who's incarcerated, um, having a caregiver who has mental health issues. What we do know is that if adults experienced ACEs prior to the age of 18, there seems to be a dose-dependent relationship between those experiences and poor health outcomes. And when I say health, I'm referring to both physical health as well as mental health. And there's a dose-dependent relationship to the point that if you have four more ACEs, you have a reduction of life expectancy by 20 years. You have higher rates of asthma, emphysema, cardiac issues such as strokes or hypertension, um, diabetes, as well as increased anxiety, depression, or even suicidal ideations and attempts. Mm -hmm. This initial set of data was collected, as you said, 25 years ago in a landmark study that was a collaboration between um, Kaiser Permanente and the Center for Disease Control, where they looked at over 17,000 adults and asked them to retrospectively reflect on what happened during their childhood and then their current state of health. Interestingly, prior to about five years ago, there was no prospective screening tool for children in order to identify these experiences early on in life in order to both prevent the experiences from leading to poor health outcomes, as well as identifying experiences as they were occurring in order to treat and heal those experiences. 
the data that we've been collecting at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital has been profound and also horribly sad. Mm-hmm. What we do know about the adult literature is that approximately 60% of adults have experienced one or more ACE and 16% have experienced four or more ACEs. In our study, which predominantly takes place in a very urban, low-income area of Oakland, California, where 90% of our caregivers are caregivers of color, 90% live at or below the poverty level, and the poverty level in the state of California is making less than $25,000 for a family of four. Mm -hmm. What we have found is that almost 80% of our children between the ages of zero up to the 12th birthday already have experienced one ACE. That Mm -hmm. is really high right? These are Mm -hmm. very young children. And what the data shows us is that for children, when they experience already one adversity, we have seen increased complaints of a somatic nature. Somatic is like what's happening in your body. So that children from a very young age have higher rates of headaches, stomach aches, they have higher rates of asthma, And even more concerning, we've seen that children that have at least one ACE have a statistically significant reduction in global executive functioning. Mm -hmm. Executive functioning is like the high upstairs part of your brain that allows you to sit in a classroom and attend to Mm -hmm. that classroom. It allows you to be able to function in social circles. And so the fact that very young children who experience ACEs are already having problems with executive functioning is very concerning. Yeah. Well, Dr. Long, it's, uh, it, it seems very intuitive and tragic what the research is showing. I just, I'm curious about causation versus correlation, because it seems to me that, you know, there could be other factors that could, for example, uh, affect things like the public health, uh, the asthma outcomes, those kinds of things. How confident are you that this, these ACEs are causing some of these poor outcomes as opposed to correlating with other factors that may be producing them? When I say ACEs, that refers to these traditional ACEs that were part of the landmark study about abuse, neglect, and household challenges. We have learned new insight about what stress is and what stressful events cause significant enough levels of trauma to impact our physiology, to really get underneath our skin and affect us on an endocrine neuroimmune level. What this new data has suggested is that there are other related life events that can cause what we refer to as toxic stress. Those other related life events include many structural inequities. They include community violence. They include experiences of racism and discrimination. They include housing instability. They include food insecurity. Mm -hmm. So when we think now more broadly about trauma, beyond the initial ACEs, we know that trauma can come from many places and has very similar physiologic effects as the initial ACEs do. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you about the screening tool that you mentioned. And I know you've been involved in uh, developing this PEARLS, Pediatrics Adverse Childhood Events and Life Events Screener. Can you describe how the PEARLS screening tool differs from the original ACEs tool that uh, scientists came up with? 
the pearls tool came out of a very rigorous methodology in medicine we refer to the gold standard of clinical trials as being a randomized controlled trial where you have an intervention group and a control group that families are randomly assigned to. Um, and then you look at the differences between those groups and try to determine what is statistically significant. The PEARLS tool was created as a result of a randomized controlled trial that thanks to the Office of Governors Planning and Research, we've been able to continue. Um, and that tool wanted to make sure that we were true to the initial science. Um, so the PEARLS tool, it includes the initial ACEs in part one, and part two actually includes these other categories of traumatic events that can lead to toxic stress that we just referred to. It asks about, have you been discriminated against? Has your child been exposed to community violence? Um, have you had food insecurity or housing instability? The PEARLS tool is the only tool in the state of California to be used um, by providers that have patients that receive Medi-Cal um, as a standard part of care. And this was supported by legislation AB 340 that helps to reimburse providers for screening so that we can make sure that not only are we identifying children who are at risk for toxic stress, but we are providing wraparound services, including referrals and um, resources for families that are experiencing trauma. It's a really exciting time. Yeah, well, let me bring Dr. Nicole Bush into this discussion. So Dr. Bush, we just heard a bit about uh, Pearl's study, and I, and I understand that you've been able to follow some of the children who were original participants in the PEARLS questionnaire, given that it was a longitudinal study. Can you describe a bit about what you've learned about them as teenagers? Um, sure. Well, first, let me just applaud Dr. Long for being such an incredible person in this field who has really shaped the landscape. It's, it's such an honor to be on this show with you here talking about this really important issue that you and your colleagues have advanced so successfully. Um, so Ethan, there's a little misunderstanding. I have not followed the Pearl's children into adolescence yet. They are entering that space and Dr. Long and I are working on that project together, actively collecting data. What I can tell you about is a couple different studies that I have conducted here in the Bay in which we've followed um, women and their children over 12 years and tried to both understand the children's experiences of adversity, um, both the ACEs that Dana described so well, as well as the uh, correlated events that lead to toxic stress. But we also asked the mothers about their own childhood history of adversity. And what we found in a couple different populations um, from the East and West Bay and also national studies, we found that women who have a history of ACEs in their own childhood are more likely to pass that risk on to their offspring such that their children born to those women with a history of ACEs controlling for a whole bunch of covariates and important potential confounders that might have occurred across their lifetime or during pregnancy. That maternal history of adversity in childhood predicts mental and physical health outcomes in their children um, and that it interacts to exacerbate risk that occurs in the postnatal period. And we found that this can be affecting developmental milestones in those children. Um, and just recently, we published a paper last week showing that maternal history of ACEs in a San Francisco Bay cohort 
predicted how likely their children were to develop post-traumatic stress disorder or symptoms related to that disorder in response to the COVID pandemic. So it's sort of setting up this two-generation negative impact across generations, not just in the individual who experienced the ACEs, but in the offspring born to those people. And so it's really important to understand how profound this impact is and that it crosses generations. It seems like it really is quantifying in some ways that intergenerational trauma and how difficult it is to have a productive adult life if you don't start off with a uh, a solid childhood. Well, Dr. Long, let me just ask you just briefly, what are pediatricians doing now with the information gathered from the PEARLS questionnaire? Was it leading to treatment of any specific kind? Absolutely. There is a swelling national movement on the part of those of us that are primary care pediatricians to focus on shifting the narrative from what is wrong with children to what is happening with children and what do we need to heal children. We have all experienced so much trauma in the last few years that our goals as primary care pediatricians are much more than just screening for trauma. It is how do we respond? And the response is multifactorial, right? The first aspects of the response are really to recover from trauma. We need to uncover the trauma. And so it's asking the hard questions. It is being able to speak the often unspeakable and oftentimes that in and of itself can be therapeutic. Resilience comes from relationships and what we really pride ourselves on as primary care doctors is the relationships that we have with our families and communities. And so leaning into that trusted bond and being able to have hard conversations is hugely important when we want to promote strength and protective factors that are safe, stable, and nurturing. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're just beyond tuning in, I, having, I just, oh, sorry, go ahead. Let you finish your thought. Go ahead. Beyond having the conversations, there is also an imperative that if you're screening a family who is food insecure, it's, you don't need to be an astrophysicist in order to understand that the treatment for food insecurity is food. And as a doctor, oftentimes children are hungry. And when a child is hungry, it's hard to concentrate in the classroom. And it can also lead to a lot of physical issues, not stomach aches, not being the least of it. And so screening also allows us to identify families who we can bring resources to bear and really um, help to surround that family with the resources that they need. Parenting is so hard, right? It's probably the hardest thing that most of us will do in our lives. And being able to have the conversations and bring resources to bear also gives us an opportunity to acknowledge how wonderful and hard parenting is and let parents know that you're doing a good job, Mm -hmm. that every single day is a chance to repair and build relationships, and that it's important to take time in with each other. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're just tuning in, this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're discussing adverse childhood experiences or ACEs with Dr. Dana Long and Dr. Nicole Bush. Do you have any ACEs? Have you wondered how your trauma and your childhood might be affecting your mental or physical health today? We would love to hear from you. If so, if you're willing to share, you can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also email us 
at state of the bay at org. Dr. Bush, uh, I wanted to ask you about something Dr. Long mentioned, which was this, the role of the state of California. And she mentioned uh, California, uh, the governor's office of planning and research support for this. And, and California was lucky enough to have the Bay Area's first, uh, or very Bay Area's very own Dr. Nadine Burke Harris was appointed as the state's surgeon general back in 2019. And Dr. Burke Harris is a, a big champion of ACE cause. And with her in Sacramento, there's a big shift in policy and funding towards addressing this important topic, at least as I understand it. So I was wondering yeah. if you could just describe a bit about what changes she and Governor Newsom have brought about during her tenure. Sure. I mean, first, just public recognition, acknowledgement of this being a massive issue. Um, you know, social determinants actually explain more than half of the variability in who has mental and physical health disease. And yet we spend so much time thinking about other predictors and genetics and rare variants and um, those types of things when there's so much about these ad- adversities across the life course, but particularly during sensitive periods such as childhood and pregnancy that explain that. And so Dr. Burke Harris and her colleagues and teams at the governor's office brought this to everyone's consciousness. They started a public awareness campaign. They got the information and, you know, uh, initiated policies that help us address these issues. And, and Dr. Long has highlighted some of the reimbursement for screening for ACEs within the pediatric care climate. But there's other things such as um, new legislation that just came out last year, um, which basically allowed youth who are people 21 years and under to get therapy, much needed therapy, if they have experienced these types of adversities. So you don't have to have a mental health diagnosis in the state of California um, to receive therapy anymore. If you have some of these ACEs, including foster home placement, food insecurity, maltreatment, uh, severe bullying, or experiences of discrimination based on race, gender, identity, sexual orientation, religion, et cetera. And that's a big deal because only the state of California acknowledges that as an experience of adversity that deserves and merits um, mental and behavioral health therapy. The state of California is now making that allowable to go and seek treatment and bill for it um, for having these adversities and not needing to pair that with a psychopathology diagnosis in order to receive that care. And the idea there is that we can identify and serve the needs of these individuals um, without waiting until they've developed an illness or without necessarily stigmatizing them with a diagnosis. And so that's a huge progress that's come out of this work. And there's other efforts, such as a very California-specific take on the Families First Prevention Act, which is trying to retool our approach to using federal dollars that help us kind of identify children at risk for maltreatment. And instead of waiting until someone's in um, the welfare system, um, they're using dollars to work with kids who are at risk of um, maltreatment to provide family therapy and resources and, and benefits to those families to prevent them from experiencing a lot of the adversities that place people on these risk trajectories. So there's a couple different things underway, as well as benefits to pay for family therapy or dyadic um, therapy between a caregiver and a child, when really the child is the person covered on the insurance. Um, and the parent with the mental health challenges can seek therapy with or without the child to benefit the child, understanding the role that this parental mental health um, might play. Um, but I really want to follow that up with a very important point that something that Dr. Long said earlier is that that relationship and that parenting is so powerful. There are so many children and individuals with experiences of adversity that are very resilient. And a lot of that is because their caregivers, whether it be a parent or a grandmother or a neighbor um, or a teacher, has been able to step up 
and provide an incredible um, net of secure relationship and hope and care for that child. And a lot of parents experiencing a ton of adversity are able to do that. And many children are resilient. So it's not a deterministic situation in which if you have four or more ACEs, you're doomed. It is really a situation in which you have a lot of potential to do well if provided with the right type of emotional, behavioral, and, and physical resources to have health. And that's what Dr. Burke and colleagues have tried to promote both the awareness mm -hmm. and policies to wrap around and make sure that people have sufficient resource to get their yeah. needs met. Well, that's very encouraging to hear. And I want to go to the phone lines. We have a caller. I believe it's Melinda from Oakland. Hopefully I'm saying her name right, but uh, welcome to State of the Bay. Thank you. That is Melinda. I am a trauma specialist who, have, uh, who has worked with babies who had a rough entry for most of my career, about 40 years worth. And what I observe is that uh, kafugaldi, that's a scientific term, kafugaldi birth that has instituted trauma in the baby that goes unrecognized can become the petri dish in which subsequent traumatic impacts grow. And yes, I was so grateful to hear that last comment that it is fairly easy to over come and heal from those adversities, but it takes attention and it takes information about how fight, flight, freeze, get locked into our nervous systems. So to tease that out is a wonderful gift for any human. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Melinda, for that. Uh, Dr. Long, I'm just curious if you uh, have thoughts about Melinda's comment here. Thank you so much for the comment, Melinda. And yes, trauma and adversity get underneath the skin. And there's this theory um, called allostatic load. And the notion of allostatic load is that we all go through life and there are amazing, wonderful things that happen to us and there are really hard things. And those hard things become drops in the bucket that we carry. At some point, the bucket gets full and when that bucket gets full, it tips over. And when it tips over is when we see the manifestation of both the, the medical, um, the mental and the physical ramifications of that trauma. And as Melinda said, there are ways to provide buttresses to support that bucket from tipping over. And oftentimes it is providing safe, stable, nurturing relationships, but also resources in the community to address trauma. ACEs are not by any means destiny. They do help us understand the root issue that's often causing disease, such as hypertension that's secondary to caregiver stress or asthma that's causing a child to miss school. All right. Well, thank you, Melinda, for that. And we have a email question in from Jill who writes, surely not everyone who has three or more childhood ACEs will suffer bad health outcomes. Is there a way to predict who might do well despite having many ACEs? And Dr. Bush, you were just mentioning this about the ability to overcome ACEs. Do you have any insights? Yes, you can share we with actually Jill? study that quite a bit. It's a really great question. Um, there's a lot of individual differences in people in our predisposition 
predisposition to respond um, with our bodies in a way that can be harmful long term. This fight or flight response that the caller Melinda brought up is a really important one. And Dr. Long described allostatic load. Those are adaptive processes that our body enlists to help us survive in the short run. They're incredibly useful. They're wonderful responses to adversity. And the problem is when they're activated in a sustained and enduring way, it can make us sick because it's not meant to be on all the time. And so there are individual differences in how stress responsive some individuals are, but there's things that we can do to promote that responsiveness. And um, there's individual differences in environment that relate to the family. There's neighborhood differences in terms of whether the crime rates are high or there's a lot of positive social um, community bonds and cohesion and safe places to play and healthy green space, whether the childcare quality is high, whether or not parents have leave. Um, things like COVID pandemically predict how well families cope with these stresses and how many adversities they, they experience. And so there's all sorts of things at multiple levels, um, things such as WIC and SNAP and other income benefits to families really offset the risk of these adversities having a, a sustained or enduring impact. There's some very exciting interventions in the Bay Area. Alicia Lieberman and colleagues at UCSF have designed an incredible child parent psychotherapy, which is one of the best validated interventions to work with children and families who have experienced trauma. And they have disseminated this all over the world, but there's many clinics um, in the Bay Area that practice child parent psychotherapy. In the East Bay, there's early intervention services, at least that I know well. Um, in the West Bay, there's a child trauma research program. And those intervention programs that specifically target the trauma and work closely with the dyad and the families are incredibly effective at improving mental and physical health in children and their caregivers, but they also, our data are suggesting, are improving the biology of those children, that it's leading to reductions in cellular aging. We have yes. interventions in pregnancy that are helping women experience who are experiencing a lot of adversity reduce their stress and depression. And we found effects of an intervention that reduced stress and supported women experiencing a lot of adversity we found two generation impacts on the baby's stress physiology at six months of age. So we were able to intervene with people experiencing ACEs and other adversities to protect both the, the person who was pregnant, but also her mm -hmm. offspring um, and their yeah. biology and health. Well, as I say, it's a really encouraging to hear about these treatment programs. We'll put some of these resources up on our website. I want to go back to the phone lines and we have Peter from Mill Valley calling in. So Peter, welcome to State of the Bay. Thank you, and thank you for a super interesting program and, and discussion. I, I have a question about if you're the parents and you're going through an episode that you know is going to be uh, traumatic to your children, such as going through a divorce or death of the family, what can you do in the moment with your children to help safeguard them against downstream ramifications? Mm -hmm. Well, Peter, such Peter, a great question. Dr. This. Long, let me go to you with that one. I love this question. Because so much of what matters in the life of the child is the relationship and the love they have with, for their parents and their caregivers. The idea of preventative interventions and treatment interventions for trauma is that we're never going to be able to make all the hard things go away. What we can do is help to regulate our response to those hard things through practicing 
mindfulness, self-regulation, and co-regulation. And in the example that you just shared, Peter, a lot of it, and it has to be developmentally appropriate, but is letting that child know that they are loved, that they are safe, that they will be cared for, that they have stability, and that they have routine, and that you or whoever whoever is the caregiver in that situation will always be there for that child. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Bush, let me give you a chance to respond to, to Peter. Do you have advice? Thank you. Um, well, I guess my response is more on a societal level because Dr. Long responded so well about the family and individual caregiver response. As a society, if we can rise up and recognize that a moderate amount of in- investment to ensure that people experiencing divorce or family transitions or loss of a loved one for other reasons can have adequate housing, adequate food, a safe environment to grow up in, that child can go to a healthy childcare or preschool context and a healthy school where the teachers are paid well and have good mental health themselves. If we can provide those basic fundamental supports to support health and well-being, then a child is going to be able to tolerate those types of, you know, adversities and maybe even thrive despite them. And so there's a lot of people who have a lot of ACEs who have incredibly fulfilling, healthy, wonderful lives. And I wanna give hope to those listeners who are hearing that and those caregivers who are worried about their children or their offspring if they were stressed when they were children or or stressed when they were pregnant. There's so much good possible, but we as individuals in our society need to do more to make sure that there's a fair start and an equitable start to those who've had a long history of unfairness to make Mm -hmm. sure that we balance these scales and promote health. Yeah, well, we've just got about a minute left. So, Dr. Long, I'm going to give you the last word. What do you recommend for people who want to learn more, want to get treatment, want to just get themselves educated about ACEs and and how to address it? The first place I would go is to look at the website, acesaware.org. You can learn a lot about the science of ACEs, screening and response, and the screening tools that are available There are trainings for providers on that website, and you have to be trained and attest to being trained in order to start to screen for ACEs. And remember that ACEs are not destiny. When we're surrounded by safe, stable, loving supports within our community, then children can really be as healthy as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, it's such a uh, great research that you're doing. Thank you for all the work you're both doing. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I want to thank you both so much for joining us as Dr. Dana Long and Dr. Nicole Bush, both with UCSF. Thank you both so much. Thanks for having us. Have a good and evening. Com- thank you. And coming up after the break, we'll hear my interview with Mariam Kudus about her new album, No Past, No Future. So stay with us. just heard Round and Loops, a song from Space Moth's debut album, No Past, No Future. Producer and performer and composer Marianne Caduce, also known as Space Moth, released her debut album in late July. In No Past, No Future, the Bay Area native and first-generation Afghan-American explores themes as diverse as the immigrant experience, the climate crisis, and our relationship with time. And before becoming Space Moth, Caduce built her reputation as producer and studio engineer at San Francisco's 
Women's Audio Mission, and Oakland's Tiny Telephone Recording. And she joins me tonight to discuss her music and career. So, Mariam Caduce, welcome to State of the Bay. Congratulations on your debut album. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So, Mariam, it sounds like your love for music started early. Can you tell us when and why you came to be interested in, uh, in music and pursuing it as a career? Well, my love for music began when I was very young, probably around six years old. And uh, I was a pretty shy kid growing up. I would often hide behind my parents' legs when anyone would say hi to me. But music made me feel free to be whoever I wanted to be. Um, I have this memory from when I was a kid. Uh, I was at my parents' restaurant after school, and they usually played the same soft rock radio station uh, every single day and it repeated like the same 40 songs and I started to to memorize these songs while I would sit there after school just sort of like drawing and daydreaming and um and one day I stood up on the countertop like at the front of the restaurant and I just started singing along to uh, to the song that was on the radio and I was singing at like maximum volume to everyone like in a in a full uh, in, inside of a full restaurant and though I was you know I was really shy so this was really surprising to my family like oh my god what's Marion doing this is not like her but that was my earliest memory of connecting with music and I had this urge to express myself through music at a very young age and it made me feel free it made me feel like you know like I could be whoever I wanted to be so a star was born on a, on a restaurant tabletop I, I like it <laughs> well so one of the songs you have pipe and pistol you've talked about it was inspired by your parents who immigrated from Afghanistan in the late 1970s. And I imagine that their experience has really shaped a lot of your music. But I'm curious, what were some of the challenges that they faced after moving to the U.S. that really kind of influenced you? Well, I I grew up watching my parents work incredibly hard. Um, they started out from nothing when they moved to the U.S. And they started working at restaurants, my mom worked as a housekeeper. They both worked at factories and they really worked so hard to try to build a foundation and a stable life for themselves and my family here in America. And I spent a lot of my life watching them start their own businesses and work, working really, really hard to try to make ends meet and build a successful life. And I feel like seeing how determined they were as a kid really inspired me as well, um, though I could never really compare the experiences that they've had um, to, you know, trying to pursue a music career, pursuing music always felt really impossible to me as well. And and seeing that, like, my parents could move to the U.S., start over, and build a really beautiful life here made me feel like, well, 
anything is possible. You know, if I want to pursue music, then if they can do that, then I, I can definitely pursue a career in music. And for you, how did growing up in the Bay Area as a first generation Afghan-American shape your music and, and your career trajectory? Well, it was a little bit tricky when I first wanted to pursue music um, because in Afghanistan, women were often discouraged from pursuing music. And though my parents were pretty progressive, they held on to some of those beliefs and they were really nervous when I told them I wanted to learn how to play guitar. Um, but they, you know, eventually softened to the idea and supported me and they bought me my first guitar. I think it was maybe my 12th birthday. And they would help me pay for my music lessons when I was first starting out as well. But I felt a little bit like I was sort of constantly fighting some cultural norms, both growing up and being born in the U.S. myself and growing up with a lot of rock music and Western culture, but also wanting to embrace my own culture as well. And so I feel like both my parents and I eventually, you know, we found a compromise. We found a middle ground and we both grew together, you know, in shaping our beliefs and adjusting them over time. Well, let's talk about the album, your debut album, No Past, No Future. You've described it as the reckoning point between nostalgia and nihilism, the struggle to hang on to a moment as it warps in time. So can you tell us more about what you were trying to, to say with this album? What, what, uh, what are some of the key themes that you explore in it? Well, No Past, No Future is about finding stability in the chaotic world that we live in. And the record is very much about moments in life that can make you feel lost, but also about appreciating the beauty of the world that we live in and cherishing the people we love uh, while they're still here with us and while the world is in the state that it's in now and just um, being being present and being in the moment is really what what it's all about. Yeah, it's a kind of a perpetual challenge. Let's talk about some of your career history up to this point. So Doe I was actually your first solo project uh, back in, I believe, 2014. Can you talk about how your music has evolved since then? Yes. So when I started making music as Doe I, I was not working as an engineer or a producer professionally. I was dabbling and using some DAWs like Logic or Reason or GarageBand, but I didn't have a lot of technical knowledge when it came to recording or the infinite possibilities of sounds you can make and the instruments you can play. Um, in the studio, one thing that I always struggled with was translating the sound in my mind to technical terms, and that often created a disconnect with the art I was making. And this eventually inspired me to learn more about the recording process. And I started taking classes at Women's Audio Mission in San Francisco, which helped me learn the foundation of recording and engineering. And at the time, I had just finished recording a doe eye record at Tiny Telephone in San Francisco uh, with John Vanderslice. And I was so inspired by the ethos and the vibe of the studio that I, you know, just quickly had created this dream of working there and just like being there every single day and making coffee and uh, setting up microphones and collaborating with other artists. It just sounded so, so fun. And so, you know, it kind of just took the plunge and I just asked John 
if he would ever be open to interning there since, you know, I had, I had taken these classes at Women's Audio Mission and he really loved hiring interns from Wham. And he's always been such a huge supporter of me and my music and was really into the idea. So I started interning both at Tiny Telephone and then at Women's Audio Mission at the same time. And then within a year or so, I became a staff engineer at both studios. And that really helped launch my career as a producer and an engineer. So where do you see your career going next? What's, what's on tap for you in terms of music? Well, I feel really happy with where things are going right now. I'm really busy working as a producer and an engineer and have a lot of fun projects coming up this year and next year. And I'm going to go on tour with Spelling, who's also from the Bay Area. Um, and Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. We're going to go on tour and do some shows together along the West Coast. And I also love holding up in the studio. It's my favorite thing to do. So there will definitely be more Space Moth in the future, too. Yeah. Where can we hear more of Space Moth? And for listeners who want to hear No Past, No Future. You can check out Space Moth on all streaming platforms on spacemoth.space. And please come out to my shows. I have a show coming up in San Francisco on October 31st at the Independent opening for Spelling. Great. Well, Miriam Caduce, otherwise known as Space Ma, thanks so much for joining us on State of the Bay. We look forward to following your career from here on out. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's State of the Bay this week. We want to thank all of our guests and listeners this evening for being part of the conversation. And for more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit our State of the Bay page on klw.org. If you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, let us know. You can email us at stateofthebay at klw.org. So join us next Monday night. We'll be talking about Golden Thread Theater Productions, which highlights works from the Middle East. Tonight's show was produced by Jillian Emblad and Kendra Klang. It was engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our board operator. I'm Ethan Elkind. Good night, and thanks for listening.